I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the, the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Every time Jeff reads, I'm reminded of but one thing, and that is one time he read the wrong chapter that we were not studying. Uh, that did not happen this morning. Thank you, Jeff. Um, it's funny, we're actually only in the first six verses, and 
We asked Jeff uh, to read the, that in its entirety. I love it, and I love the way this ends. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. That's encouraging. Uh, at times, it feels like the nations are are everything, and they're a they're a footstool, which is great news. Um, it, lots of great announcements and things going on today, Sarah. Um, very excited to see you go again. Not because we don't like you, uh, but because we care for the mission. So excited to see you go. I think there may be, I know there's a birthday in the room. Happy birthday. Um, we're going to bring you up later and, and have everyone sing to you. And you're going to tell us, your, your dad and mom are going to tell us your favorite like baby story about you. Something super embarrassing, which there may or may not be pictures already loaded up for. <clears throat> Just to ease your mind, that's, none of that's true. Um, I wonder if maybe anybody has an anniversary of some number of years, recent, bakers, how many? 46. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. And it's worth going back to see the picture of David. <laughs> 46. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. All right. Um, Psalm chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. I, I really don't want to admit how much time I spent this week studying one element that completely did not come into uh, any of this, and that is kind of a bit of a... Um, um, a bit of a disjointed disagreement amongst great people as to whether or not this is an acrostic, whether or not 9 and 10 should really be 1. And so kind of depending on Bibles that you have in your hand, you, you, the numbering could be off. It tends to happen here around 9. Some people see 9 and 10 as, as 1, and they, they see it as an acrostic, which is just to say uh, of the letters of the alphabet, each would start with the Hebrew letter of the alphabet going down through through 22. Um, but th that's not entirely true here. There has to be some gymnastics to pull things kind of back together and get them in order. So I say all that to say we're not going to spend a ton of time leaning into that. Um, but I wanted to get the mileage out of the probably three plus hours I have of what you just heard. Um, so... Some folks will see 9 and 10 as the same, but there are other more clear acrostics. Um, Psalm 25, Psalm 34, and 37. Uh, 111 and 112 both have the entirety of alphabet. 119, which we studied together uh, several months back as an acrostic, and, and 145. Um, however, I, th I think it's probably a bit of a, a, bit of a stretch here uh, to, to view it in that way. I don't think the handoff is very graceful. And to me, it feels a bit forced. Um, so just know if you ever see any strange numbering issues in the Psalms, that's because some people see 9 and 10 as one, and, uh, and others do not. Um, also, I think in chapter 10, you know, we hear in, in all of chapter 9, it was kind of this victorious, worshipful posturing. Um, this is a Psalm of David. We know that uh, because it starts off by saying that it is, in fact, a Psalm of David. Um, and so we hear this kind of victorious march, and then when we turn to chapter 10, it would feel a bit like an about-face. Uh, Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away, a far cry? Um, it just feels like a change of direction. Uh, Psalm 9, verses 19 and 20, so the, the end of chapter 9 says, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear. O oh Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. And then you would accept that chapter 10 would be an extension which says, why do you hide yourself? Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why 
do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So I, I see these as separate. I don't see the acrostic here. I think there's things that make it look that way for sure. Um, but I'll leave the argument to others. I just, I don't see it. What I do see is I see a psalmist who's inspired to worship. And I, I first was going to say driven to worship. And I know inspired and driven, what's the difference? I think that we see David as he reflects on who God is, as he reflects on the character and the nature of God, as he reflects on God in his life, in the past, and what he sees will be in the future, I think we see David inspired to worship. And so I think the question for us, as we look at something like this, with its enduring principles of, of David being worshipful, of the Psalms being almost like a, a hymnal, for our worship would be for us to consider ourselves and wonder, can we catch the same inspiration for daily living? Um, you know, you hear the phrase sometimes first world problems, right? Uh, you know, we complain about all kinds of things. We can get to the point of kind of like being Quasimodo, right? Where everywhere we go, we're, we're dragging one leg. Our shoulders are down. We feel like the world has been unfair to us. I think when we look around, we realize God has been incredibly gracious to us. And I would submit to you um, in places that we compare ourselves to and say God has been incredibly gracious to us, we would say the same in their position as well. God has been incredibly gracious to us. Every night when we go to sleep, for most of us, everyone who's here, 100% of you right now, this is true, God animates our bodies all night long. Our lungs breathe in, they breathe out. Some of you make a lot of strange sounds in between. Some of your, your bedmates wish that you would slow some of that down so they could also sleep. But God keeps our bodies going for whatever reason. Our brains create electricity, however that happens. It fires off neurons. Some of our synaptic gaps are filled by, ca by caffeine. Others just normally, electricity passes and our bodies fire off. Our heart goes in the right rhythm. Our eyes can see. Our minds have a way of receiving this. This is all evidence of God, and he's so good to us to give us life, especially knowing that when this life ends, we have, for those of us who believe and are found in Christ, we have nothing to fear. In fact, passing from this life is great blessing. I think that's one of the things that we can miss about the garden, about the fall, is that God put an expiration date on us so that we would not have to endure a fallen creation forever. Could you imagine living here forever? I would hate to think Mussolini and Hitler and all of these tyrants of past had that long of a head start on me. What would this place look like? I submit that if people lived for too long, everything would have just, just self-destructed. We would have destroyed everything. I mean, we're constantly living on the brink of nuclear war. Give us several hundred years, we'd just all kill each other. And so God gives us an expiration date. He takes us out. And it's a blessing. And so my... My ESV, if you have the Bible in the pew in front of you, starts the same way. It says, to the choir master, according to Muthlaban, a psalm of David. I said that we know that this is a psalm of David because of that. That's in the text. That's not a title or editorial footnote. Um, LSB, if you've shifted that direction, says, for the choir director, all Muthlaban, a psalm of David. Often people will say that this Muthlaban or all Muthlaban is maybe a melody or a tune, a song that this could be sung to, something that was long forgotten. We don't know what it is anymore. 
Others have tried to grasp and find maybe more, more profound keys to knowing what David was talking about. Um, maybe there was a, a leader in, in one of the armies that was set against David whose name was similar to this. What we do know is in this psalm, David will be singing thanks to God for victory and praising God by thinking back on his goodness to him. And this psalm sets a, a tone for a worshipful David that gives us a pattern for worshipful living. And I, I pray that that would be our encouragement to go into our week, to wake up to our days prepared to be thankful. Um, maybe you've known someone, maybe you are someone who's just a sour person. And to a sour person, everything is just sour. You know, they can just see something terrible in every situation. You, you, you know, when you show them something, their first reaction is to find its flaw. Maybe you've known someone like that before. I, I joke with Brianna all the time about, if you ever, um, I'm on Facebook for groups. Like I'm in Dangerous Grinder Attachments, which is a great group. I would submit you join that. PA Square Bodies, things found at Costco. Seriously, like I showed Brianna a picture last night. It was like somebody had a picture of crackers and pickles. They were like, found this in New Jersey. It's awesome. But every once in a while, these reels pop in, which is inferior TikTok. And so on these reels, oftentimes I'll see these kind of construction things. And I love it because what I do know for sure is everyone is about to tell that person how what they're doing is completely wrong. If, if, you're, if you're in construction at all, you know the first thing you do when you come upon someone else's work is you become completely critical of it. You have to. You just have to say why it's wrong. So I'm surprised this building's even standing, is how most people will put it. So I like to go into the construction reels comments just to see everyone saying how wrong the person is, which reminds me of another group I'm in, which is people incorrectly correcting one another. Something about us is bent towards sourness. But I would submit to you that for the believer, with a healthy view of all that God is, of his grace and his goodness and his mercy, which is a direct correlation to what is due to us because of sin, his grace and his goodness and his mercy should pull us away from being sour people. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. God is good all the time. And this is what we see in the Psalms. This is what we see in David is, is he's just gloating on God. And I think sometimes he medicates himself by thinking back on God's former goodness to him. Paul would talk about being able to be happy in little and in much. I think it's easier to be happy in little than in much if you avoid the sin of comparison. Comparing your cup or yourself to what other people have, if you don't do that, it, I believe, is easier to be happy in little. And so David here is gloating on God and inspired to worship. We'll look at verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. How often is that our perspective? How often do we come into the day and say, I'm, I'm gonna, with all of my heart, with the whole of it, I'm going to give thanks to God. Meaning no drawing back some ability to be sour all day, the ability to look at the thing that someone shows you and, and tell them why it's garbage. 
but to just be excited, to look and, and have opportunity to rejoice with those who rejoice rather than be critical and knock them down. With my whole heart, I'll give thanks to God, David says. On this point, I think uh, Calvin brings up this really interesting reference to Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1.16. If you'll turn to that section, um, I think the, 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 the greater perspective on what is happening is, is perfect here. This ability to give thanks with your whole heart. The, the ability to give thanks with your whole heart is not about weight or energy. It's not some measure of your thanks. What it's talking about by whole is not that you've leaned in even more. It's that there's not some part that's reserved for something other than thanks. It's not the, oh, I'm doing pretty good, but my leg hurts. And I'm not saying you can't be aware that things hurt. I'm just saying you can have a tendency to dwell on things and complain. Uh, my friend Preston, we used to call him Preston the Rebuker, um, was stabbed in a prison cell under his armpit, and one of his hands didn't work because of it. Um, and so it was, it was, it was like stuck like this. The guy could type really fast like that, too. It was an amazing thing to watch. Um, and, you know, I would often be near Preston because we were good friends and, and joke around and pick on one another. And I would hear someone complain about a pain in their body. And it was almost like you were like, because you know what's coming. You know, somebody would say around him, oh, man, my arm hurts. And he would be like, brother, you're lucky to even have that arm that God allows you to have an arm. You're lucky for that. And there's something to that, right? Not, not some legal perspective, but there's something to taking a view of this life and how good God is and embracing and owning all of that and being jealous for that and wanting that. Imagine having a, a total satisfaction and joy. I submit to you that you can. It might not come to you naturally. You may have to force fit it. You may have to come remind yourself who God is. You may have to remind yourself what wrath is. And you may have to remind yourself that there is none for you in order to be happy and satisfied in all things. But I submit that you'll be better off to concentrate on working for that than on negativity. Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 12. This is Habakkuk's second complaint. Are you not... From everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent? When the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. And what will I answer concerning my complaint? And the Lord answered me, write the vision Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It 
hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed as wide as Sheol, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own peoples. Yes, he sacrifices to his own net. This is his, his prowess and his strength and his ability. He's, he's looking on these, this nation that is being in this moment allowed to seemingly do evil and do wicked against God's people. And Habakkuk can say, why do you, you can clearly see that this is going on. Why would you let this godless heathen people do this to us? And it seems that they're just like yoking us up out of the water like fish on hooks or in nets. And you allow it to happen. It's almost like if you've had kids or if you've been a kid. If you've been a kid, you have to have siblings to understand what this is like. And specifically, you have to be the middle or younger sibling to understand. Or maybe you've seen this, you're familiar with the situation. Your older sibling gets to stay up past 10. Why can't I? Now, as a parent, the answer, the most appropriate answer is, of course, because we like you less. However, it could be you're younger and you need more rest. It could be that because you're a horrible tyrant when you're tired and your older sibling is okay or I don't feel like arguing with them right now. There's all kinds of things that we just we don't know. We can't understand. We can't see. And that's in a family situation. How much more God being perfect, being sovereign, having complete knowledge, knowing how everything interrelates and and interacts with one another, having a perfect will. See, if we know these things about him and we know he's good, we can be patient, not necessarily enjoying the circumstance, but knowing if my good heavenly father allows this, then it's good. And I trust him in it. Can you imagine having been a slave? And I don't, I don't mean in like, you know, some kind of a nice situation, right? Where it's kind of working to your benefit, you get some things provided. I mean, horrible, hard-driven slavery, building blocks with your hands and building huge buildings. And then feeling like you're, you're going to make an escape and you gather up your children and a little bit of food, your, your babies, your, your wife, and you want everybody to be protected and you're terrified and you're running and you're trusting in God. And there's this pillar of smoke and you follow it by day. There's a pillar of fire and you follow it by night and everybody's walking and nobody really knows what's going on or where you're going. And you know when a national army is driving behind you in chariots, warriors are coming after you and your family. You come up to a body of water. The same God that had this situation put together is the God, is our God. He's the sovereign God. And so... Just like that nation of people struggled to trust as they walk up to the edge of the water and think, why are we being allowed to be overtaken by this nation? Why are my, my babies and my family about to be killed by these insane, heathen, slave-keeping, murderous warriors? We're vulnerable to this. 
And then God opens up the water, dries the land, allows them to pass, and kills the entire army. And on the backside of that water, they still continue to not trust. That's a perfect picture of people. That's us. That's us in this story. And God is a merciful pursuer who has a perfect plan. And sometimes we don't understand it. Sometimes you have to go to bed sooner than your sibling. Sometimes it seems that the wicked around us are successful, whereas we try to be pleasing towards God and are not successful or are less than successful than we would desire to be. Again, I would submit it's the sin of comparison. It's as old as people. In the first verse, David says, I give thanks with my whole heart. How does he do that? How does he give wholehearted thanks and worship to God? He tells us he, he recounted God's wonderful deeds. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. You can still do that when circumstances aren't great. You can still recount what's happened in the past when things in the present aren't wonderful. When they don't feel well, when they don't feel right, you can recount God's goodness and His mercy and His grace towards you. And we have something that David didn't. We have the whole of Scriptures. All 67 books. I just wanted to see if anybody's going to say anything. Some of you got uncomfortable. All 66 books. What a blessing that is. I remember thinking, man, it would be so great to have lived in the times of, of Scripture. But, you know, no. I, I love having access to all of this, the full counsel of God. From Genesis to Revelation. That's incredible to be able to read all the stories to see of God's goodness and His grace and His mercy. To have this living word that divides between soul and marrow, bone and spirit. He says in verse 2, I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your high name, O Most High. This single-heartedness, this undistracted by self or selfishness resulted in singing and pouring out of songs of praise. C.S. Lewis, reflecting on the psalm, said, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that is magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdity denying to us as regards to the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help doing about everything else we value. He's talking about the psalmist just pours out worship of God, looking at who God is, looking at the character of God, looking at the nature of God, knowing that there's grace and mercy for those of us who believe, cause us to sing out praise to God, and more than that, want to pull other people in. They leave us looking differently. I've said before, it would be like if, if as a church we went outside and we stood on the sidewalk and we all just stared up at the sky. People that walked by would stop and say, what are they looking at? As believers... 
when we gather and praise and His worship and we go praise-filled and worship-filled, we should have this general gaze about us that makes people want to say, what is it that they're so preoccupied with? Some of us are occupied enough with God that we talk about it, Him throughout the week. We bring up mention of our church. We bring up mention of the Bible. We bring up mention of Jesus. Whereas the world brings up ridiculous, heinous, unimportant things like the Steelers. Who could care less? On our lips should be the praise of our God. Not some horrible, wretched, deplorable, unimportant, unsuccessful sports team that gets a sponsor from a terrible state and renames an entire stadium at, do they even care about the great state of Pennsylvania? I would submit not. But God is good in spite of it. Let not your hearts be troubled. God is good all the time. Isn't it interesting that this does describe our hearts? When there's something that we're interested in, we just want other people to like it too. We want other people to be aware of it too. We want to bring other people into observing this thing. How much more God? It's His wholehearted worship results in songs of praise. Whether or not this is an acrostic, whether or not it's chapter 9 and 10 or 1, it is designed to drive our minds to worship. And David is inspired to worship by thinking back on God's past deliverances, goodnesses. Verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and they perish before your presence. David knows that in God's sovereignty, in God's sovereignty, his enemies can't even turn away. They can't even turn away and run. There's no escape in God's sovereignty. And if you need it, sovereignty is a 25-cent word. It'll make you sound very smart. Um, one of our, our missionaries, Sarah's nervous, not Sarah, said one time, well, that makes God seem more robustly sovereign. I was like, that is such a cool statement. More robustly sovereign. Yeah, that could probably be the title of a book. Certainly, at least the chapter, an anchor portion of a book. It could make a great t-shirt or a coffee cup. You put a sticker out there. You can name a blog, More Robustly Sovereign. People would go there and read it, but it can't mean anything. It, you, the sovereign is binary. It's either on or it's off. There's no more robust sovereignty. Sovereignty means all-consuming, in all control, in every single aspect. This is why Lazarus in the tomb, dead as can be, unable to respond to anything, responds to Christ's call to arise and walk, even though surely he must stinketh. The dead are caused to rise at the sovereign call of God. And David knows God's sovereignty and he's driven to worship because of it. Consider Psalm 68.1. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. David knew that. Look, look at what he says in verse 3 of Psalm 9. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. 
Consider Isaiah 64, 3. That's 6, 4, colon, 3. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. Scriptures are full of references of the very physical earth trembling at the presence of God. But yet we are Christians sometimes on Sunday, and then for the next six days, we're just disassociated people wandering about the earth who have completely forgotten about a holy, sovereign, righteous God that created everything and is engaged in every moment of life. David understood sovereignty, and he saw the events of his life playing out the very will of God, the very counsel of God's will. And he filtered his life like that. And that drove him to worship, praiseful worship. That drove him to singing. So I wonder if we believe in an active, living, and sovereign God. If we do, it should impact the way that we live, for sure. It should impact our thoughts. We should pause on occasion and think on our God. We should talk about him, certainly more than some silly little insignificant football team with a goofy logo and crazy colors like the Steelers. Got him. It's a question we should ask. Do we containerize and compartmentalize our lives on Sunday? Do we have a church experience and a Bible study or reading experience where we see God working? We see it. We read it on the pages. And then we go about our lives for the next six days completely disconnected from God. I don't say that to be a judgment. I say that to be a call to so much richer of a life than that. I pray that David's view inspires us to be called to a single-hearted worship and seeing God's hand in our own lives. Because we're called to be worshipful in all tenses. Past, that's what we see David doing here. He's looking back. He's remembering on God's goodness. Future, but also, or excuse me, present, but also future. How frequently are we encouraged by the future reality of the kingdom of God? All over the place. Psalm 16 and verse 5 reads, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Does that ring true for us as God, our portion and our cup? Not only the container to be filled, but its full contents is God. What more could there be than the container and its contents? There's nothing. God is Everything. God is absolutely everything. And when that becomes true, then and only then can we live as Paul says. Happy and little, happy and much. Because that's background noise when God is our portion and its container. Psalm 140 and verse 12. I know the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. I know that is true. I know that God will maintain the cause of the afflicted. I know that God will execute justice for the needy. 
Do we believe that? Is that sunken deep into who we are? Do we believe that the truth of Psalm 140.12 is everlasting and enduring and true? Do we believe that God is active? Do we believe that God is engaged? Do we believe that God is caring? These are truths all over Scripture. And, and we can become disassociated from those truths while we still read Scripture. You can have a lot of heart, head knowledge and be completely unaffected in any other area of your life. This is why the seminary is sometimes referred to as cemetery. It's the place where good believers go to die. I'm not saying that's always true. But I've seen plenty of times when it is true. And it's just an empty head knowledge. It will never satisfy the soul. Only Christ, only looking to God and His goodness and His mercy and His great love will satisfy your soul. Looking to Christ, who lived in all ways like us, however without sin, we wonder how did how did Christ Himself live when pressed? Maybe when when it would seem the deck was stacked against Him, which it was. How did Christ Himself persevere? I want you to consider First Peter chapter 2 and verse 23. Love, love seeing perspective on how did Christ endure and live in a life that I'm in, um, but come out victorious, come out trusting in God, come out without having sinned. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But... Okay, so he did something in addition to these knots, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted God with the circumstances of his life. He trusted God with judgment. He trusted God with the outcomes. When, when we desire to see the outcomes that we want, we're like Habakkuk. Why are you allowing this to happen? Questioning God's goodness. Now, of course, we end up there sometimes. We're, we're consumed with the, the situations of our life, but we have to remember positionally who we are and who God is, that we are creature. He is creator. We have to remember that He is good. We have to remember that not only He's... We have to remember that He's not just trustful, He's trustworthy. We can put all of our trust in Him safely, not like with people. Right? You can't even trust people to say things in text. They'll screen cap it and send it around to their friends. Jim told me a secret yesterday. I screen capped it and sent it to John. Our desire to just drive God for outcomes is bratish. How we should go to God with our everything, pour ourselves out before Him, and then trust Him in. And over a lifetime, He will conform us through that process more and more into Christ's image. It's, 
It's how we grow as believers, learning to trust him over time. Remember the, the hammer verse of Habakkuk 2, verses 2 and 3. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. That's an old word for sticky notes. Not really. So he may run who reads it. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. David recognizes God in all aspects of his life. His success in military endeavors is not because of his own prowess and his great mind or his efforts, but it's on God. If you look to verse 5, we read, You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their names forever and ever. David sees the conquest and the things that are happening through his life as consistent with the Word of God. Read Proverbs 10.7. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. Or look at David's pronouncement in 1 Samuel 17.45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Verse 6 of Psalm 9. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. Their very memory of them has perished. Like Proverbs 10.7 is Proverbs 13.9. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. We shouldn't take a short view of our present reality. We should be looking on to an eternal life, and that will inspire our worship. If we just look at the here and now, we can get so caught up in circumstances and difficulties and things that are going on, which are vastly important, and God cares so much about them, but they can be used for our own discouragement when we dwell on them. And so we can be encouraged to know that we're called to worship in all tenses, present, past, and future. Now, when I considered this reality, my head went where anyone's head would go which was to Men in Black Part 3, um, which I believe recently came out on Netflix. Now, I thought it was a new movie, but apparently this was created before people started putting Jada Pinkett's name in their mouths. It was like a more peaceful will. In this movie, there's a character named Griffin, or Griff, if you will. I like Griff. It was pretty fun. If you haven't seen the movie, it came out in 2012, so I'm not even going to say spoiler alert or care that you haven't seen it because you've had time. Right? So Griff 
was of these people that were no longer alive. I promise you we're going somewhere. Griff was of these people that were no longer alive. He was the last of his kind. Archaean or something like that, I think they called him. And Griff knew what was going to happen in the future with one small caveat. He knew all possible futures and in a given moment and just before it was about to happen. And there was a sense in which when Griff was around, everybody felt confident, right? Because even though he would give all kinds of weird caveats, you know, he would say like, uh, oh, I like this one. This one ends up like this. And then he would caveat it by saying, unless somebody does this or does that, and then here's the outcome, right? So he was helpful and frustrating all at the same time. So with Griff in view, let's read Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and the sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. David sees God in everything. And as he looks back and reflects on God, this causes single-hearted worship that the psalmist calls us into. Just as in the silly example of Griff, they feel better knowing he's there because he knows and he can tell them the future. How much more perfect vision of the future do we have of Revelation? Our God says we will be gathered together with him. There's no equivocation. There's no you might be gathered together with him. God tells us exactly what will occur in the future. The things of this life are important, yes, but the promised future is so much greater than anything on this life. The hopes of this life are where moth and rust destroy, but God tells us of a greater future and brings us into that future, just like resurrecting a very dead Lazarus. 
So I pray for us that we would be called to worship together in the same way as David, that we would, we would be so inspired by that, that we would want to go and, and talk about him and his greatness singing to a world around us about this great and awesome God. Would you join me and let's pray. God, we thank you that you've given us your word by your grace and your mercy so that we can know you and we can know of your goodness. And we only know of our goodness, God, because you've exposed to us who we are through your word, that our hearts are so deceitful and wicked that we can't even know them. But you came to us, God, by your mercy, having, having sovereignly elected us to respond to you, to be chosen by you, and to have Christ's own blood as payment for our personal sins. God, I pray if there would be anyone in the room this morning that doesn't know you, that isn't joined to you, God, by Christ, who hasn't been drawn by your Holy Spirit, that right now perhaps they would hear the gospel for the first time, which is that Jesus Christ is the payment for their loss and dying heart, that you are the remedy, that you are their creator, that you are their personal God and you love them and you care. And so, God, I pray that you would save them through the only way that you do, which is by drawing them through your spirit to your son to be redeemed to yourself by a simple prayer that says, God, I am so far from you and I want to be brought near by your son. God, for those of us perhaps who have believed for a while and maybe have forgotten how much rejoice we ought to have in you, God, would you reinvigor and stir our hearts to be worshipers in every tense, God? Would you make us be excited again? Would you drive us into our word? Would you surround us by fellow believers and pull us into fellowship that just screams to a watching world how great and valuable you are? God, I pray that you would do all these things in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand and join us and worship through Saul.